Hey there, listeners. This episode took many hours of research, writing, recording, and editing during a super stressful time for everyone that has left most of us, I dare say, pretty low on energy. And even though I make this show for free, you can now leave a tip to show how much you appreciate Inside the Text. To do that, head over to coffee.com slash inside the text. That's ko-fi.com slash inside the text. If you didn't get that, don't worry, there's a link in the show notes. Chipping in a couple bucks to support the work that went into this episode would be so cool. Okay, enough of that. Let's get started. I'm Jed Cole, and you are Inside the Text. There are over 2,000 species of Lepidoptera, the order of insects that includes butterflies and moths, that are found only in the islands of New Zealand. Almost all of them are moths. Unlike butterflies, moths are mostly nocturnal, or, and I love this word, crepuscular, meaning active at twilight. Scientists seem to agree that moths evolved to use celestial objects like the moon to navigate across long distances, a process called transverse orientation. There is less certainty. About why they're so attracted to artificial lights. See, you'd think moths would spiral closer and closer to a lamp or a candle, keeping the light source to one side like they do the moon, but apparently they don't. Regardless of the reason, the use of an artificial light source, say a candle, is therefore pretty handy, especially if you're an amateur entomologist studying moths after your day job. There is only one main road in or out of Karori, New Zealand. The forested area west of Wellington, the colonial capital, was cleared and sold off for development in the 1840s by European settlers, becoming a suburb of the city by 1920. An early marketing campaign called the area pleasant and romantic, a place for Europe's quote-unquote bold races. Before its settlement, native Maori folks would hunt there, its original Te Reo name referring to bird snares. Karori is a basin susceptible to fog, and surrounded on all sides by green, tree-covered hills overlooking the suburb and the blue harbor to the south. There, in those southern hills, lived George Vernon Hudson, entomologist, astronomer, and postal worker. One of six children, Hudson was born in London, England, the son of a professional artist and stained-glass window designer. He got into insects as a kid, and even got a paper published in a London entomology journal before his family moved to the British colony in 1881. Now, could I just level with you? Like, the more I learned about G.V. Hudson, the more I kind of crushed on the guy. Like, just a really neat person. Like, after he built his house in Karori, his grandson says that the lettuces he grew in his garden were famous, and he'd share the stuff he grew with his neighbors. He apparently set up an observatory that folks could come and use freely, and, like, he hosted groups of kids at his house to learn about entomology, I don't know. Adorable? I want to say adorable. Anyway, in 1898, he published New Zealand Moths and Butterflies, 
a field guide for general readers interested in the island's Lepidoptera, and one of a number of books and papers he published during his lifetime on the island's insects. Looking through the book, references to time and place sort of jump out among the dry anatomies and descriptions, where you can feel hints of the simple pleasure Hudson must have taken in his studies. In my veranda, on warm, still evenings, at the tent door during mild evenings, resting on tree trunks during the daytime, on the flowers of an alpine veronica in the dusk of evening, on fine evenings, soon after sundown, and on warm, still evenings, during three evenings at the door of my tent, sometimes met with at rest on trees in the daytime. G.V. Hudson worked for the post office from age 16 until he retired in 1919. And any bio of Hudson you'll find seems to mention as a matter of course that he appreciated the shift work nature of the job. It let him spend those evenings doing something he clearly loved, studying moths, which is partly what led him to make the first modern proposal for daylight saving time. summer, it is proposed on the 1st October of each year to put the standard time on two hours by making 12 midnight into 2 a.m., whilst on the 1st March the time would be put back two hours by making 2 a.m. into 12 midnight, thus reverting to the present time arrangements for the winter months. The effect of this alteration would be to advance all the day's operations in summer two hours compared with the present system. In this way, the early morning daylight would be utilized and a long period of daylight leisure would be made available in the evening for cricket, gardening, cycling, or any other outdoor pursuit desired. That's from Hudson's paper, which he read to the Wellington Philosophical Society the same year Moths and Butterflies was published, titled On Seasonal Time. He'd actually presented on the topic a few years before, meeting with a number of objections and even ridicule from the other members of the Philosophical Society. But hundreds of copies of his argument had been printed in Christchurch on the South Island, and had proved pretty popular among regular folks. So the 1898 paper was sort of a take-two. The basis for what we now call summertime or daylight saving time, as listeners are probably aware, is fairly simple. Days get longer during the summer months and shorter during the winter months. Since that elongation happens on both ends, morning and evening, Hudson is like, let's shift the clocks a bit so that we get up closer to sunrise and then have more free time at the end of the day. What Hudson has in mind here is basically rearranging the typical workday, shifting it back a couple of hours. He defends his position against the idea that the workday would just get longer. Although there are, at present, nearly two hours daylight after closing time in summer, I'm not aware that any systematic attempt has been made to lengthen the hours of labor in summer on this account. The milkmen and other persons who have to begin their work very early in the morning would undoubtedly suffer under my scheme, as they would have to start their duties in the dark of early morning almost the entire year through. As these persons, however, constitute a very small minority in the social community, it is not to be expected that their personal comfort or convenience would be allowed to interfere with the adoption of the scheme, if it were found to be beneficial to the large majority. For Hudson, the community would truly benefit from more time that could be spent outdoors and away from work. It's leisure time that Hudson is after. I am convinced that all those who believe an abundance of outdoor recreation is the most effective means of securing human health and happiness should support this scheme, as by means of it, 
the average worker in summer would enjoy from four to five hours fresh air and sunshine after his day's work was done. Daylight saving time, or DST, was, alas, not adopted in New Zealand for almost 30 years. But 11,000 miles away, back in the motherland, someone else came up with a similar idea for shifting clocks, just a few years after Hudson did. An important part of the history of capitalism in England is the process of enclosure, whereby lands that had for generations been held in common by the local peasant class were consolidated, fenced off, and privatized by the burgeoning owner class, beginning in the 16th century and accelerating rapidly toward the end of the 18th. To make a long and complex story short and overly simple, where once folks could live off the farming they managed on the commons land, now they were forced into having to sell out their labor for wages because that land was now private property. The area of Chislehurst, on the northern edge of 1800s Kent, passed through the hands of the monarchy and several noble families over generations, and was regarded as available to the villagers, who could let their livestock graze there. But as enclosure took hold across England, Chislehurst's common land eventually came under threat. Development came along with railroads, and the commons there attracted industrials like G.H. Bascombe, proprietor of a brick and tile works, who wanted to use the commons land to dig up gravel. In 1876, he ordered a windmill he owned there to be pulled down and the land fenced off to sell to developers. But locals didn't like this. At night, they got together and pulled down those fences repeatedly. Eventually, after a public meeting threatened Bascombe with legal action, he backed down, and in 1888, locals were able to get Chislehurst Common folded into the Metropolitan Commons Supplemental Act, which legally handed over management to a local board of trustees. William Willett was the kind of guy who went horseback riding before breakfast every day. He owned land in Chislehurst, whence he helped operate his family's construction firm, designing and building high-end speculative houses in and around London. In the 1890s, Willett, in the spirit of local defeated industrialist G.H. Bascombe, tried to enclose nearby Camden Park, which bordered the commons. He wanted to have the whole estate cleared for new construction. The locals foiled this too, proving to the court that custom had established common rights for the land. In the end, in what seems a concession, the park was preserved as a golf course. Willett was, according to David S. Prerow's history of DST, a passionate golfer. No doubt he took full advantage of the new course in Camden Park. As the story goes, Willett was riding one summer morning across Chislehurst Commons when he realized he was the only one up and about, at least besides the milkman and the occasional chimney sweep. And it is here in 1905 that Willett reflected, as Prerow puts it, on this distressing waste of daylight until he hit upon the idea of shifting clocks forward during the summer. It soon became a personal cause, and he would lobby for it till his dying day. Using his own money, Willett published a pamphlet in 1907 titled, provocatively, The Waste of Daylight, laying out his case and calling on, quote, every man and woman, and every youth in particular, to join him in the cause and pressure Parliament to adopt a six-month national experiment of the scheme. The contrast between down-to-earth, working-class G.V. Hudson's paper before the Philosophical Society and capitalist William Willett's rousing pamphlet is stark. To be fair, Hudson's paper is clearly intended for an academic audience. Willett's pamphlet, on the other hand, pulls out all the stops with a moral appeal, extending his own solitary reflections one morning to the entire population. Everyone appreciates the long, light evenings. 
everyone laments their shrinkage as the days grow shorter, and nearly everyone has given utterance to a regret that the clear, bright light of early mornings during spring and summer months is so seldom seen or used. The pamphlet includes a detailed table tallying up all the money to be saved on energy costs across Great Britain and Ireland, totaling by his calculations some two and a half million pounds. Willett's argument then reaches for the heavens, invoking daylight as, quote, one of the great gifts of the creator, breeding courage for the struggle of life, after which he rebukes England for its wastefulness. That as many as 210 hours of daylight are to all intents and purposes wasted every year is a defect in our civilization. Let England recognize and remedy it. Let us not be so faint-hearted as to hesitate to make the effort when the cost is so trifling and the reward is so great. One line in particular stands out in the pamphlet with historical hindsight. While praising daylight's divine power, Willett writes that, quote, Against our ever-besieging enemy, disease, light and fresh air act as guards in our defense, and when the conflict is close, supply us with most effective weapons with which to overcome the invader. The war metaphor here is apt, since daylight saving time never really gets off the ground until it becomes a tool in the waging of war in 1916. One year after William Willett, daylight's defense notwithstanding, died of the flu. By 1917, when the proposed bill to save daylight and to provide standard time for the United States was being discussed before the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Interstate Commerce, 11 European countries, led by Germany, had adopted some form of DST, turning back the clocks to conserve coal during the war that was raging across the continent. Bill S-1854, introduced by Senator William M. Calder of New York, an architect much like William Willett, set out to standardize U.S. time zones as well as introduce the policy of advancing the clock by an hour on the last Sunday of April and reversing it on the last Sunday of September. The documents transcribing the May hearings before the subcommittee show almost no opposition to the idea of DST. Academics saw it as a simple, utterly logical matter of optimization. Labor unions saw it as a way to give the working class more leisure time to plant gardens and thereby relieve the wartime supply chain, one of President Woodrow Wilson's main talking points on the subject. The Wall Street Journal estimated at the time that some 800,000 tons of coal could be saved by turning the clocks back. But the most vociferous proponents of daylight savings benefits came, then as now, from the besuited voice of capital. The Chamber of Commerce testified before the subcommittee, arguing first from waste, pointing out that in midsummer, if the workday begins at 8 a.m. and ends at 5, Almost five hours of sunlight have passed before the workday begins, and but two and a half remain after its close, depriving us of sunlight in a part of the day which, quote, has great importance for human efficiency. The chamber also noted how DST would improve working conditions. Increased daylight in the hours of greatest fatigue will tend to lessen tuberculosis, will decidedly reduce eye strain, will increase personal efficiency, and will materially lessen industrial accidents. One of the more noteworthy participants at the hearing was Sidney Colgate, head of the Colgate Company, who talked to the subcommittee about the daylight saving trial run he oversaw at the company's huge Jersey City complex a couple years earlier. 
We see the difference in the morale of the office, in the work which we get out of the clerks. He went on to relate what is almost certainly totally accurate and unadorned feedback from employees. How they have more time for, quote, little plans for excursions, for looking after their gardens, for being with their families, going even so far as to say, quote, we feel like working more. Which, again, I'm sure is exactly what they said. Colgate drove his point home with an anecdote. I said to one of our employees last summer, Jim, you do not seem to have taken a vacation this summer. I have noticed you've not been away from the office at all. He said, Mr. Colgate, I feel that I've had a vacation all summer long, and I have never been in such good condition. He said, that last hour I get off in daylight is worth everything to me. The bill's only outspoken congressional opponent was Otis Wingo of Arkansas, who called it, quote, a bill for the relief of the slackers of the nation who are too lazy to get up early. He eventually changed his tune. The bill passed in the spring of 1918. It was repealed the next year, amid a sea of complaints. All the praise for the new system overlooked, among other things, the fact that not all work is industrial work. Work in urban areas might go strictly by the clock, but in the agricultural industries, it was a bit more complicated. As a House of Representatives article on the topic explains, farms were adopting eight-hour workdays and increasingly relying on hired wage workers around this time. Under DST, these workers now arrived an hour earlier for their shift, but they couldn't harvest crops until the morning dew had evaporated, which meant that they spent the first part of the day simply waiting. So much for efficiency. By the next year, pressure from the agriculture industry and findings that the amount of coal saved was actually negligible all pushed Congress to take up a repeal of Section 3 of the bill, eliminating the mandate for daylight saving while leaving the revised time zones in place. President Wilson vetoed it. Congress overrode it. Daylight saving time was dead. Or not? If the political contours of daylight saving time became apparent in the bill's passage and repeal, things got even more complicated afterward as localities were now free to follow DST or not as they wished, resulting in, well, kind of a mess. One story recounted by historian Kate Worson really shows the political tangle of the situation. On the night of June 30th, 1922, New York Harbor lay under a thick fog as six ships carrying 1,789 immigrants from various small European countries raced through the dark trying to be the first to reach Ellis Island at the stroke of midnight, July 1st, the start of the new fiscal year. The reason? Well, under the United States' recently adopted restrictive and um, bigoted immigration laws, immigrants from countries such as Latvia, Armenia, and Greece were limited to very strict and very small yearly quotas. The occupants of one of these ships could fill the quota for some of these countries for the whole fiscal year. The fog made this race hella dangerous, one ship almost struck a cruise liner, another came within a few feet of a Coast Guard cutter. At midnight, the ships crossed the border, which is when Worsen says, all hell broke loose. She describes the chaos thusly. The ships had arrived at midnight in New York City, but in 1922, New York City followed daylight saving time, much of New York State did not, and the federal government only voluntarily followed it. Federal law mandating daylight saving time had been repealed in 1919. This raised the question, had the ships arrived in the new fiscal year, or had they, nightmarishly, arrived just in time to accidentally miss the new year? The scene in the fog was chaos. Some captains were advised to return and try the three-mile race again, while others were told to hold their place in line. As the waiting room at Ellis Island filled with exhausted passengers, 
the piers filled with their friends and family, lawyers, politicians, and businessmen prepared to fight once more over the legality and utility of daylight saving time. This debate would be answered when the U.S. entered the next world war. In another resource-saving gesture, President Franklin Roosevelt instituted year-round DST as a temporary measure to last until the war ended, branding it wartime. This, of course, was repealed automatically in 1945, throwing the country back into its confusing mix of local DST statutes. By the 1960s, a number of industries had begun lobbying for congressional action on what one political cartoon called the daylight saving time confusion of the disunited states. The somewhat ominously named Committee for Time Uniformity, formed by the Transportation Association of America, an industry group, performed a survey that got a lot of press at the time. Its most sensational finding demonstrated that traveling along one 35-mile stretch of highway between Moundsville, West Virginia, and Steubenville, Ohio, meant passing through a whopping seven time changes. In response, the 1966 Uniform Time Act finally established daylight saving time throughout the country, with states able to pass their own laws for exemption. Arizona and Alaska are the only states that do not observe DST today. In the years since, various amendments have extended the period of DST in response to, as usual, industry lobbying. The golf industry, of course, remains a wealthy proponent of DST. The so-called candy industry helped nudge the extension of DST to include Halloween, by some accounts. As of 2021, DST in the U.S. stretches from the second Sunday in March to the first Sunday in November. And every year, a new slew of op-eds gets published arguing that DST is a big bother and should either be made year-round or tossed in the garbage bin of history. Personally, I could go for year-round DST, but... Uh, don't expect a pamphlet anytime soon. One of those testifying at the subcommittee hearings back in 1917, a Professor Jacoby, laid out the case for daylight savings like it was the most common sense idea in the world. In summer, the sun rises earlier than it does in winter. The period of sunlight is appropriate for work, the period of darkness is the period appropriate for sleep, and the time of year when the sun rises earlier, it is logical and sensible to get up earlier. Many people do it now, we simply have a device to enable everybody to do it without inconvenience. This device is probably a reference to the system of DST itself, but effectively, Jacoby is talking about the clock, without which DST makes no sense. And that device is part of a broader political shift in human social organization, began centuries before, of which daylight saving time is merely, if emblematically, a part. As one theorist has put it, you can sum up human history as a series of struggles by the great mass of people to achieve a realm of freedom out of the realm of necessity. From basic survival to abstract artistic pursuits, everything we do to flourish and carve out a bit of freedom from the uncontrollable, the circumstantial, from that which oppresses or suppresses our individual and collective selves, that's called labor. It might be a no-brainer to say that one of those realms of necessity is time. It might 
also be a no-brainer to point out that our relationship to time and how we labor in and from it, our time sense, if you will, can be changed, and in fact has changed a lot, and not without struggle. In a village or domestic context, before the rise of industrial capitalism, for example, time and labor are talked about relative to the task at hand, what historian E.P. Thompson calls task orientation. Within this conceptualization, the organization of social time follows upon the rhythms of the work by way of a logic of need. For example, as Thompson says, hunters must employ certain hours of the night to set their snares. Fishing and seafaring people must integrate their lives with the tides. The grain must be harvested before the thunderstorm set in. Sheep must be attended at lambing time and guarded from predators. Cows must be milked. The charcoal fire must be attended to. One thing Thompson notices is that under task orientation, there's very little demarcation between work and life. Social intercourse and labor are intermingled, he says. The working day lengthens or contracts according to the task, and there's no great sense of conflict between labor and, like, shooting the breeze. This all begins to change, Thompson observes, as soon as actual hands are employed. You could say that at this point, labor becomes work. In the 1600s, large farmers in England began calculating expectations for hired labor in terms of hours and days. One account book, for example, estimated one set of plots would take a good mower four day works to complete. This measurement, Thompson writes, embodies a simple relationship. Those who are employed experience a distinction between their employer's time and their own time, and the employer must use the time of his or her labor and see it is not wasted. Time is now currency, Thompson says. It is not past, but spent. By the turn of the 18th century, most English parish churches apparently had mechanical clocks, though Thompson has some doubts about how accurate they were. Apparently it was a custom for landowners to donate to such churches in exchange for a regular tolling of the morning and evening bell. Thompson quotes one such agreement from 1664, stipulating that the bell should toll for half an hour at four in the morning and eight in the evening between September 10th and March 11th each year. So that, among other reasons, quote, as many as might live within the sound might be thereby induced to a timely going to rest in the evening and early arising in the morning to the labors and duties of their several callings, things ordinarily attended and rewarded with thrift and proficiency. Thompson observes that things in the clock world picked up with the application of the pendulum starting in 1658. Household clocks became much more widespread, and the use of the spiral balance spring beginning in 1674 gave pocket watches greater accuracy. For a long time, though, good watches were something pretty much only the gentry, masters, farmers, and tradespeople could afford. This began to change toward the turn of the 19th century. Similar to cars and computers and smartphones in the 20th and 21st centuries, clocks and watches quickly became one of those necessities that advancing capitalism imposed if you were going to keep up with the times, if you will. <laughs> as capitalists became more minutely aware of their time budgets, as Thompson puts it, they realized that a change in the landscape of labor was necessary to balance them. Over many decades, enclosure and land development, along with the imposition of massively punitive laws against vagrancy and unemployment, served to force more and more workers into regular wage employment and away from self-employment or part-time piecework, where task-oriented workdays lengthened and shortened dramatically. 
See, with self-employment and piecework, or taken work as it was also called, laborers only take on as much work as they need. In regular wage work, by contrast, laborers work as long as the boss can make them. And here's why. At a certain point in a wage work shift, the laborer has produced enough to break even with the wage they're earning. That happens pretty quickly. The rest of what they produce during their shift goes entirely to the owner as profit. Welcome to capitalism. Make no mistake, workers fought this new order of things. This long, fraught, and violent process of struggle, coercion, and expropriation ultimately left most workers without any viable alternative, though, except to join the new labor force as wage workers. But of course, that struggle has never really ended. An entire literature of time thrift and individualism arose during this process as part of an ideological struggle to inculcate workers into an ethic that fit with the new wage work model. Pamphleteers and clergymen put out reams of material aimed at the poor, blaming them for their poverty and encouraging individual industry and hard work for one's employer as a path to godliness. New forms of schooling became means by which children could be trained on the values of timeliness and work ethic by way of disciplinary practices. As Thompson recounts, one writer even advocated in 1770 that poor kids as young as four should be sent to workhouse school combos, since there is, quote, considerable use in their being somehow or other constantly employed at least 12 hours a day, with the hope that the rising generation will be so habituated to constant employment that it would at length prove agreeable and entertaining to them. Fun fact, the New Hampshire Libertarian Party tweeted the same thing in the year of our Lord 2021, saying, quote, children will learn more on a job site than in public school. <laughs> One early attempt at instituting stricter time discipline in this burgeoning industrial scene was made by Sir Ambrose Crowley, owner of one of the largest ironworks in Europe in the early 1700s. The old autocrat, Thompson writes, found it necessary to design an entire civil and penal code running to more than 100,000 words to govern and regulate his refractory labor force. This code establishes positions called monitors and wardens to keep timesheets for each employee entered to the minute to track employees' quote, sloth and negligence. Crowley's words, not mine. When Crowley discovered that some employees were timing their arrival and departure by slow and fast clocks, respectively, the code was amended. It is therefore ordered that no person upon the account doth reckon by any other clock, bell, watch, or dial but the monitors, which clock is never to be altered but by the clockkeeper. The attempt by employers to control and limit employees' knowledge of and access to time reached some particularly extreme lengths during the mid-1800s. Thompson uses the example of a textile mill where a worker reported, quote, We worked as long as we could see in the summertime, and I could not say at what hour it was we stopped. There was nobody with the master and the master's son who had a watch, and we did not know the time. There was one man who had a watch. It was taken from him and given into the master's custody. Another account says that the bosses would adjust the clocks forward in the morning and back at night out of the worker's sight. But while employees knew this was happening, the workers were afraid to say anything about it since they'd seen plenty of co-workers fired for doing so. So, Thompson concludes, the labor movement learned that time is money only too well.
Pier Francesco Tosi was born in the 1650s in Cesena, Italy. He was a musico, a euphemistic way of saying that before puberty he'd been castrated, ensuring that his larynx would not fully develop and thus leaving his voice within the high boyish soprano range for the rest of his life. Due to the endocrinological effects of early castration, Tosi's arms and legs and ribs would have grown slightly longer than average, giving him greater breath capacity for the cantabile-style chamber music he was trained to perform. Besides becoming a singer of some renown, Tosi was also a composer and a writer. His 1723 treatise, Opinioni de Cantori Antichi e Moderni, contains the following aphorism. Whoever does not know how to steal time while singing knows neither how to compose nor to accompany themselves, and is destitute of the best taste and greatest knowledge. Tulsi's book is the first published appearance of the term stolen time in the European musical vocabulary. In her analysis of classical music performance, Sandra P. Rosenblum defines stolen time, or tempo rubato, as it is most often phrased in sheet music, as, quote, a disregard of certain notated properties of rhythm and tempo for the sake of expressive performance. When playing in tempo rubato, the performer slows down or draws out its phrasing relative to the established tempo before speeding back up, almost like it's lifting the music out of its assigned place and putting it back when it wants to. This practice of expressive play with the tempo of musical phrases goes back a long time, of course. Rosenblum documents various turns of phrase to describe it, including a 14th century madrigal that instructs the player to, quote, hide one's face, if I interpreted the Italian correctly. Two other texts from the 17th century use the phrases breaking the time and noble negligence. Maybe it's no surprise though that the metaphor of time theft should appear in European music at the very moment that clock-driven capitalism is beginning to take hold in its workplaces. By the mid-1800s, as textile mill bosses were hiding their clocks from their workers, Dietrich Nikolaus Winkel had developed what he called a musical chronometer, a metronome, capable of keeping both fast and slow tempos, which had been a struggle for inventors up until then. Winkel had neglected to patent his creation, and sure enough, the design was stolen and hawked by a certain Johann Mielzel, professional tinkerer and scam artist. Mielzel eventually drew the interest of none other than Ludwig von Beethoven, who was among the first composers of the period to begin adding metronome instructions to their sheet music. While Beethoven is not known to have used the exact term tempo rubato in his compositions, Rosenblum observes he must have been aware of the practice judging by an inscription on one of his works, indicating that the metronome marking was, quote, applicable to only the first measures, for feeling also as its tempo. Later in the 19th century, Frederick Chopin brought tempo rubato into the limelight with his highly expressive piano compositions and performances. In a 1926 article reflecting on his countryman's musical brilliance, composer Ignacy Paderewski elevated the musical idea of tempo rubato to new and never-before-seen heights of national pride. For him, Chopin's music, quote, eludes metrical discipline, rejects the fetters of rhythmic rule, and refuses submission to the metronome, as if it were the yoke of some hated government. This music bids us hear, know, and realize that our nation, our land, the whole of Poland, lives, feels, and moves in tempo rubato. Francesco Tosi thought tempo rubato an honorable theft when he described it in 1723. Provided, he added, that the singer, quote, makes a restitution with ingenuity. See, the musical practice of stolen time usually involves giving back the time at some point, speeding back up in a way that feels somewhat commensurate with the initial slowdown. 
In this behavior of give and take, of refusal to submit to the metronome, or the clock, tempo rubato is akin to the patterns representative of the laborer in possession, as it were, of their own time, as E.P. Thompson demonstrated. The lengthening and shortening of the measure, like the irregularization of the workday or the workweek, according to the logic of feeling, or the logic of need. To the classicist and the capitalist alike, such performance is no doubt a horrifying display of living, feeling, and moving in stolen time. According to Laureen Snyder, while the study, quote-unquote, of unproductive workers, quote-unquote, is certainly not new, sociological and criminological literature first began talking specifically about the problem of employees stealing time, quote-unquote, in the 1980s. One such study from 1983 labeled behaviors like coming back late from lunch breaks, conducting personal business on the job, and, quote, loafing around or goofing off as theft of time. Quote unquote. Okay, so from here on out, just insert your own scare quotes on like all the buzzwords, okay? Time theft became a fairly popular topic in the business press and social science circles in the 80s and 90s, a way of isolating and in some cases criminalizing unproductive worker behaviors, reframing them as something that evoked a moral as well as a potentially legal response. Theft of the employer's time and therefore their money. Snyder's survey of the literature is, if not surprising, at least revealing. Time theft has been characterized by business writers as insidious, a severe blow to the nation's productivity, and an abuse of business. Idle chatter, time spent on the phone with family and friends, holiday season shirking, arguing with customers, unauthorized long-distance calls, overstating timesheets, taking extended breaks, arriving at work late, leaving early, reading on company time, and even over-associating with co-workers were all decried by business writers in the 80s and 90s under the rubric of time theft. One of the contributing factors to capitalists hand-wringing over time theft in all its sundry forms was, according to Snyder, the increasingly essential technologies of word processing software and email, to say nothing of social media in the early 2000s. It became clear that these otherwise benign software systems could be used by employees for non-work purposes on company time. A 1983 article in the Journal of Office Administration and Automation was titled Theft of Computer Time, or Is Your Operator Secretly Writing Romances? In the age of the COVID-19 pandemic, the same things are said about remote work, for those who've been granted that capability. A Forbes piece that made the rounds in spring 2021 declared, Study shows people working from home are having sex, dating, taking naps, and doing side hustles on company time. The numbers for a lot of these studies, Snyder writes, were typically obtained by asking a specified number of managers in a variety of businesses to estimate how many employees engage in time theft. So it should come as no surprise that 
business owners became, and as the Forbes piece shows, have remained, convinced that the problem is a matter of widespread and incorrigible worker deviousness. How have businesses historically responded? As expected, not well. In 1986, President Ronald Reagan introduced the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, which prohibited, among other things, intentional or willful interception, accession, disclosure, or use of one's wire, oral, or electronic communication. Okay, more privacy is good, right? Well, after businesses dogpiled it, the bill was modified to allow for three types of exemptions to this privacy law. One was for owners of the network service, i.e. employers. Two was for all business-related communications. And three, whenever an employee gives express or implied consent to being monitored or surveilled. That uh, pretty much covers the bases, I guess. Regulations in the U.S. have consistently bowed to business owners' anxieties about time theft, and tech companies have met the demand for ever more minute time-tracking technology. As a result, workplaces have become increasingly surveilled, workers increasingly monitored and disciplined, and individual tasks increasingly tracked, at least when they're not automated. Amazon is, of course, an easy example. The shipping megacorp has gained notoriety for using a high-tech system to track time off task or TOT in its warehouses. If a worker goes too long without scanning packages, the system automatically generates warnings. Enough TOT and you're fired. According to a report by The Verge, an Amazon fulfillment center in Baltimore, for example, has fired upwards of 10% of its staff every year for productivity reasons using a quote-unquote proprietary productivity metric. During the Bessemer, Alabama Union campaign earlier this year, it came to light that some delivery contractors were having to urinate into water bottles and defecate into baggies, while others struggled with changing menstrual hygiene products on the road because they didn't have time enough to take bathroom breaks. And this despite the company's stated policy of offering a 30-minute lunch and two 15-minute breaks per shift. These policies are counteracted by Amazon's strict delivery time standards, among other things. The resulting anxiety that comes from working in a hyper-surveilled environment under near constant danger of losing one's job results in real physical and mental health consequences, not to mention work accidents. After Amazon crushed the Bessemer Union Drive, they announced they were starting to roll out Amazon kiosks in some workplaces, private booths where workers can be guided through interactive mindfulness exercises. There's no indication, of course, that the productivity demands on workers have changed with that rollout. As one writer put it in a tweet, I feel like livable wages and working conditions are better than a mobile despair closet. Of course, capitalists and their cronies in management see employees' theft of their time, that is, their profits, as the real problem. And we've seen them crack down on it with near impunity. But what about the time, that is, the wages, they steal from their employees? Stephen Biddle and Lorene Snyder examined the myriad ways employers get away with stealing labor time and wages from workers in their paper, How Employers Steal from Employees. 
to wit, unpaid internships in many so-called creative industries affect women disproportionately. Unpaid labor in the social services is widespread, often taking advantage of part-time or contract work to extract more labor from employees than they're paid for. Some clocking in mechanisms incentivize workers to clock in early to their shifts only to have their time rounded up. In the UK, a 2016 study found that as many as 362,000 workers weren't getting minimum wage. Companies under-recorded their hours, falsely labeled them as self-employed, interns or volunteers, and forced workers to pay for uniforms, tools, training, and travel. In 2017, the Economic Policy Institute reported that in the 10 most populous US states, some 2.4 million workers lose around $8 billion annually to minimum wage violations, affecting almost one in five low-wage workers and young people, women, folks of color, and non-citizens in particular. If the findings for these states are representative, then the total wages stolen from workers due to minimum wage violations alone exceeds $15 billion each year. In their essay, Biddle and Snyder sum up the situation like this. All the available information on wage theft shows that employers routinely steal wages from those they employ, and that these acts are rarely meaningfully sanctioned. At best, they are treated as administrative offenses which generate small fines and are only problematic in a tiny minority of employment relationships. At worst, they are never even discovered. Biddle and Snyder take a step back at this point to look at how wage theft is normalized ideologically. Neoliberal policymaking, outsourcing and offshoring of jobs, decimation of unions, and the demonization, deregulation, and downsizing of public services have, as the authors put it, quote, produced massive increases in corporate power and income inequality and shifts in employment opportunities. Not coincidentally, accompanying these changes are concerted campaigns to alter the expectations of individual workers. These expectations that are communicated to us paint a picture of what many economists call austerity, a situation where everyone has to do their part to help the economy recover from crisis after crisis that largely result from the very inequality and exploitation we all have to endure from the ultra-wealthy who get bailed out and subsidized while the rest of us have to compete for less and less benefits. In short, dear listener, business is the real thief in this situation. Another Economic Policy Institute report has this graph charting productivity and a typical worker's compensation over time since 1948. Wages go up at the same rate as productivity until about 1979. And then suddenly, while worker productivity more than doubles by 2020, wages almost flatline. We're doing more and more for less and less, largely due to policies that deregulate corporate power and give them ever more control over our lives and livelihoods. From this perspective, Biddle and Snyder argue that Wage theft is best understood as a moral project based on a grand narrative that we're all in this together, with everyone doing his or her part to ensure the economy's stability. You know, like when Jeff Bezos flew in a rocket up into space. Once again, the capitalist class is engaging in the practice of enclosure, but not over land, or, well, not just over land, but also over time itself, as Biddle and Snyder argue. In our present, while capitalist enclosure has come to deny enormous swaths of political participation, public services, cultural patrimony, and ecosystem survival, a new enclosure has been forged in which employees no longer have access to or control of their own time and wages, a situation which allows employers to steal workers' wages slash time with impunity, the authors write. 
Of course, just as with G.H. Bascombe's attempts to enclose Chislehurst Commons a couple hundred years ago, people don't just lay down for this stuff. Frustrated Frito-Lay workers in Topeka continue to strike for higher wages and better working conditions. Hundreds of Sutter healthcare workers in Antioch walked off the job this morning. Tens of thousands of farmers are taken to the streets today in India. Workers at all of the Kellogg Company's U.S. cereal plants walked off the job this week. Thousands of carpenters have been picketing at construction sites all around western Washington. The union representing many crew members and editors and other behind the scenes workers have called for a strike authorization vote. Union workers on strike for a dollar more per hour at the largest produce seller in the nation, saying they are essential workers. Management countering with a 32 cent raise. We don't work! We don't work! We don't work! We, don't work. we want Sutter to care about their patients as much as they do their profits. We're doing 14 days straight. We're scheduled 12 hour shifts. We're working 16 hour shifts. These farmers are here with a very clear and strong message for the Indian government. They say they will block roads. They will disrupt this government. And all this during the biggest, deadliest pandemic any of us has ever seen. Pandemics are not new to the human experience. However, the context in which many of us have experienced the COVID-19 pandemic, according to anthropologist Rebecca Irons, is different in an era of clock time, timesheets, and global information networks. Writing in late 2020 from the UK, Irons argues that the specific phenomenon of quarantine, quote, moves differently than our daily lived temporalities of routine and order and forces us to question the intimate relationship that we may have with how we structure our daily lives around a clock and a timesheet. Her first example here is the turning of daylight saving time in the fall of 2020 during lockdown in the UK. She recalls, quote, The internet was flooded with sarcastic memes about the futility of changing the clocks when one would not be going anywhere anyway. A petition circulated in Britain to urge the government not to put the clocks back, echoing the likes of William Willett by arguing that, quote, Natural light is one of the greatest tonics for mental health. Even in the U.S., two Florida senators proposed legislation that would skip the November time change and extend DST through November 2021 to provide, as they put it, one year of stability for families who are already dealing with enough change with virtual learning, work from home, and other disruptions the COVID-19 pandemic has placed into our daily lives. Neither measure was successful, as far as I know. For Irons, one of the things that has made our experience of this pandemic unique is time-space compression. Time, she points out, drawing on the work of David Harvey, directly influences how we relate to space and how we move through, experience, and construct it. Quote, Outside of quarantine, clock time might influence whether one's body is located at home or at a workplace, and every movement in between those spaces, such as the daily commute on the bus or the afternoon trip to buy coffee, time literally moves us. Except, she says, in quarantine, that is precisely, and perhaps uniquely, not the case. Many people were locked down at home during the 14th century Black Death or the 1918 Spanish Flu, but they didn't have the internet or the ability to continue working from their computers or receive instantaneous news updates on the progress of the disease way too many times in the day to be helpful or video call loved ones and not so loved ones. Quoting Harvey, Iron says that under mobile networked internet enabled neoliberal capitalism, everything becomes instant in what amounts to an annihilation of space through time. 
paving the way for digital labor, as well as what others have called ambient intimacy, through being both able to connect to anyone at any time, and also to be monitored anywhere at any time. The pandemic didn't create any of this, of course, but it has intensified it, Irons argues. Under quarantine, she says, We have no longer been able to move through space physically, but have moved through virtual space with increasing intensity, drastically more movement in one sense, and a complete halt of movement in another. And for many, there's the rub. Those ambient intimacies can quickly become unwanted intrusions. Whereas in 1989, Harvey was talking about the home as a private museum to guard against the ravages of time-space compression, Irons says that under quarantine, the home has transmuted into a time prison of temporalities without spaces and ambient intimacies without cessation. One consequence that Irons discusses is being frozen into a kind of enforced presentism, since the intense compression of time through space has, for many of us, hindered, quote, our ability to engage in long-term planning, as we are continuously connected to a global space and cannot exist quietly outside of it whilst doing so, with the Goliath uncertainties that hang over individual freedoms and futures. While writing this bit, I asked some folks about their experience with the pandemic and how it affected their relationship with time family, and work. One person said that with ADHD, they already have trouble noticing time passing or planning ahead without assistance. After isolating, my ability to judge that passage of time collapsed, they said. Coping skills stopped working, and I primarily experienced time as looming work deadlines that paralyzed me with anxiety. Another person said that while on paper they had more time than they knew what to do with, as a student and a worker, they never managed to capitalize on it. I always felt anxious and had constant tension between what I wanted to do and what I needed to do, they said. This person also said that they felt trapped with their parents for whom they are a caretaker, a phenomenon Irons doesn't really touch on. They told me, I desperately need an escape from my family, but can't have it until the pandemic is over. Someone else I talked to, having begun quarantine already in an isolated situation, told me that if anything changed, it was only that that situation intensified. So much for ambient intimacy. Isolation and alienation are definitely through lines among the responses I got. As for me, lockdown meant that time and space felt inflated and compressed at the same time. If I already felt alienated from my work, which I did, having to manage myself at home made me feel super alone and frustrated. Even though the coworkers in my sphere talked about communicating more, using the remote technologies at all our fingertips, I think we communicated less than before. In my personal life, the very idea of reaching out over webcam or phone or social media often exhausted me, and as often as not, I avoided it. The ambient potential for remote intimacy became a source of anxiety and guilt. The ever-present possibility of connection, unused, left me feeling acutely disconnected. One of the folks I talked to is a freelancer partnered with someone who works a 9-to-5 sort of job. Their take on the quarantine experience was kind of poetic. Time became homogenized and had to be redivided with effort into work and non-work, as though we were on a ship in the Arctic, waking for dogs' watches beneath a sunless sky. Irons talks a little bit about the different ways material conditions shape our reckoning or marking of time. 
In an office, time is reckoned by the clock. At a school, time is reckoned by the recess bell. In the fields, time is reckoned by the position of the sun. In quarantine, time is reckoned by... well, it depends. For Irons, that relative nature of quarantine is what could for some, quote, begin to disrupt the acceptance of industry's grasp over time routines as people become more conscious to it. In her concluding remarks, she ponders the potential for a new time discipline, along with perhaps a new time reckoning under quarantine, if not whatever comes afterward. For example, back in New Zealand, where our friend G.V. Hudson lived, the idea of a four-day work week has been floated as a way to reinvigorate the tourism industry in that country. Andrew Barnes, whose company Perpetual Guardian went to a four-day work week in 2018, has been a vocal proponent in New Zealand, comparing the idea to the German system of Kurzarbeit, meaning short work. Under that system, employers have to reduce working hours instead of laying off employees, with a large portion of workers' lost income getting picked up by the state. Germany extended use of Kurzarbeit as COVID-19 raged on. Maybe it could catch on in other places. Or rather, maybe it's worth organizing for. I caught myself recently ending a statement with the phrase, when everyone forgets about all this. This meaning the pandemic, the millions of lives lost, the disruptions to our space and time that reminded us of how alienated we are in our work, and how starkly it's driven home the necessity of asserting ourselves against a class of owners who ultimately do not care about us or our world, as long as our time makes them money. Anyway, I said it like it was inevitable, like I assume people will simply move on from all this once it's, you know, all over. In her essay, Rebecca Iron says in a remarkably qualified sentence, The disruptions caused in intimacies and perceptions of clock time and work routines are not necessarily poised to be immediately forgotten. Not necessarily, and not immediately. And anyway, says Mary Oliver in a poem to take us out, I was so full of energy. I was always running around looking at this and that. If I stopped, the pain was unbearable. If I stopped and thought, maybe the world can't be saved, the pain was unbearable. Finally, I noticed enough. All around me in the forest, the white moths floated. so much for listening to Inside the Text. That last bit you heard was from a poem by Mary Oliver called Moths, appropriately enough. You can find a list of all the sources I used researching this rather lengthy and meandering episode in the show notes. If you liked the episode today, please subscribe to the show and give it a five-star review on iTunes. I'm told that helps new listeners find the show. Producing this show takes a lot of time and energy, both mental, physical, and emotional. And I am doing this for free, so if you liked what you heard, you can go leave me a tip at coffee.com slash inside the text. That's ko-fi.com slash inside the text. I would be so grateful. You can find the podcast on Twitter at inside underscore text pod and yours truly at electric didact. Until next time, peace. <laughs>